Hello and welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 49. We're in the eastern Transvaal where Lord Roberts's large army mobilizes once more in late August 1900 in order to march on Boer General Louis Boerter. Roberts had been joined by General Redvus Buller, who'd made his way north from the Natal colony, pushing the Boers before him. Buller's men continued skirmishing with the Boers. For instance, on the 15th, they were at Twefelaar and had taken possession of Carolina. Here and there, a distant horseman riding over the olive-coloured hills showed how closely and incessantly Buller was being watched, and snipers continued to fire on his flanks. Buller's column had come nearer to the main army led by Lord Roberts, but it was also nearer to the main body of Boers who were waiting in that very rugged piece of country which lies between Belfast in the west and Macharadorp in the east. A note here about the feud between Lord Roberts and General Buller. When the war began in October 1899, Buller had been the commanding officer of the entire British army in South Africa. He was technically demoted when Roberts had arrived in early 1900, and neither liked the other. Curiously, they feuded from a distance. Their first face-to-face meeting ever was on the 7th of July. So when Buller joined Roberts in the Eastern Transvaal in August 1900, it was significant, for it boiled down to a simple fact. Buller was in charge of what was known as the African-British Experience, and Roberts was the Indian-British Experience. Two worlds clashed along with these two men. Louis Buter's army had grown. There were now 7,000 men dug in along the ridge of the escarpment, and from this rocky stronghold they had thrown out mobile bodies to harass the British advance from the south, and every day brought Buller into closer touch with these advance guards of the enemy. On August 21st he had moved eight miles nearer to Belfast. French was operating upon his left flank. Here he found the Boers in considerable numbers, but he pushed them northwards with his cavalry, mounted infantry and artillery, losing up to 40 men killed and wounded, the greater part from the ranks of the 18th Hussars and the Gordon Highlanders. This march brought him within 25 kilometres of Belfast, which now lay due north of Buller. At the same time, Paul Carew, with the central column of Lord Roberts's force, had advanced along the railway line, and on August 24th, he occupied Belfast with little resistance. On the evening of the 23rd, it found Buller only six miles to the south of Dalmanuta, the centre of the Boer position. By some misfortune, however, after dark, two companies of the Liverpool Regiment found themselves isolated from their comrades and exposed to a very heavy fire. They had pushed forward too far and were very near to being surrounded and destroyed. There were 56 casualties, and 32 included the wounded captain were taken prisoner. The total losses of the day were over 120. On August 25th, it was evident that important events were at hand, for, on that date, Lord Roberts arrived at Belfast and held a conference with Buller, French and Paul Carew. Buller had been grumbling about how slowly Roberts was moving, which in itself was hilariously hypocritical, as Buller was notoriously slow himself. Roberts had a tactical conundrum. He faced the same problem as the attack on Diamond Hill. Boers were dug in and armed with around 20 artillery pieces. 
Boerter was cleverly exploiting the geography once more, and his trenches and redoubts straddled the main watershed line of mountains that carried the railway between Belfast and Transvaal President Paul Kruger's HQ at Waterfall Onda to the east. Worse, Boerter's men were virtually all mounted and had access to horses, which meant the 7,000 were technically able to move from their trenches far quicker than the British. Roberts's immediate force was 19,000 strong with 82 guns, but fewer than 5,000 were mounted, so his mobile units were actually smaller in number than the Boers. So he planned a flanking manoeuvre which, had he followed through, would have been catastrophic for the British, as the eastern lunge he wanted meant his cavalry would have ended up in a series of bogs or wetland. Buller had a better plan, which was adopted. Littleton's two infantry brigades would attack near the centre of the line, supported by a massive artillery barrage. French's cavalry would push around by way of Leidenberg to the north, while Roberts's own units under Paul Carew would be held technically in reserve. Such a movement leaves the enemy in doubt as to which flank was really being attacked. While he denudes his centre in order to strengthen both flanks, there's a chance of a frontal advance which might cut the British army in two had the Boers wanted to do so. It is probable that Lord Roberts had reckoned that the Boer right was likely to be their strongest position, since if it was turned, it would cut off their retreat upon Leidenberg, so his own main attack was directed upon their left. That was carried out by General Buller on August 26th and 27th. The Battle of Bergendal was the last set-piece battle in the Eastern Transvaal. It was also where Buller finally recovered some of his honour, at least in his eyes, as he had surveyed Louis Buter's positions and for once correctly identified a tactical key position. It was a big red-coloured kopje or hill on the farm called Bergendal. This three-acre jumble of large boulders and rocks jutted out in the form of a salient from Buter's line, therefore rendering it both a critical point of defence and attack. It was strongly held, but actually a weak point. Unlike Spion Corp, it could not be defended from the sides or the rear. So Louis Butter had turned to his most motivated men, the Zarps, and ordered 60 into the Corp, with the order to hold it at all costs. And it would cost all. Their last stand out-rednecked the rednecks. How ironic that the notorious Zarp bully boys of Johannesburg, the police who had shot Tom Edgar and provided the British with a perfect excuse to attack the South African Republic, these same Zarps would eventually be lauded by the British themselves as heroes worth honouring. On the first day, the movement upon Buller's part consisted in a very deliberate reconnaissance and closing in on the enemy's position, his troops bivouacking upon the ground which they had won. On the second, finding that all further progress was barred by the strong ridge of Bergendal, he prepared his attack carefully with artillery and then let loose his infantry upon it. The clash also mimicked what was to happen on the Western Front with its multiple artillery barrages, men clustered closely together in trenches and the havoc and chaos that comes with this kind of warfare. The Zarps may have been bullies in peace, but they were certainly heroes in war. The fire of 60 guns was concentrated for a few hours upon a position only a few hundred yards in diameter. Buller ordered a three-hour-long bombardment of this three-acre death trap. The broadside included naval guns carried by the army, howitzers and field guns. They fired hundreds of shells each into the copy. 
In this infernal fire which left the rocks yellow with Lidot, the survivors still waited grimly for the advance of the infantry. At 2.30pm, Buller gave the order to Littleton to let loose four battalions at the handful of Zarps who'd survived the bombardment. Lord Roberts had actually arrived at Buller's side, having ridden across the ridges nearby to avoid exposure to the Boers. The attack was carried out across an open felt by the 2nd Rifle Brigade and by the Inniskilling Fusiliers. As deadly fire from the entrenched Boers swept across these two units, Colonel Metcalf, who led the Rifle Brigade, along with eight other officers and 70 men, were killed or wounded. Denise Rates was watching. As soon as it grew light on the third day, the bombardment recommenced more furiously than ever. But instead of being spread out all over our front, it was concentrated on that section held by the Johannesburg police a mile to our right. The weight of the shell battering the unfortunate Zarps was immense, but when the 2nd Rifle Brigade on the left and the 1st Inniskillings on the right advanced in short bounds from cover to cover, they came closer to the Boers who opened fire. Morza and Pompom were brought to bear on them, and the Inniskillings replacements for the fallen of Hearts Hill hesitated before gathering themselves to keep pace with the rifles in a final bayonet charge. The bravery of the Zarps was outstanding but fruitless. As a formation, from that moment, they technically ceased to exist. The British casualties were high too. From their new position, the British could enfilade the Boer line. That could not hold. Rates and his comrades had been watching, unable to intervene. By sunset, the police were all but annihilated, and in the dusk we saw the English infantry break into their positions. Here and there, a hunted man went running down the slope behind, but the majority of the defenders were killed. Our line being broken, we had to give way too, and after dark, General Boerter ordered a withdrawal. For once, the British attack had gone like clockwork, even if the casualty rate was high. For example, the artillery ceased fire at the last possible moment, protecting the attacking force from sustaining higher casualties. As it was, said the captain of the leading company, a 94-pound shell burst about 30 yards in front of the right of our lot. The smell of the Lidite was awful. The trophies of the day included a Boer pom-pom and 20 prisoners. Amongst these was the commander of the police. An outwork of the Boer position had been carried, and the rumour of defeat and disaster spread through their ranks. This was a significant victory for the British. Buller had smashed open the weak point in the Boers' armour, and their lines caved in along the entire front. Lord Roberts, who really hated Buller, was forced to eat humble pie, as he thought the copy could not be taken. Commander Littleton wrote later that, It was done under Bob's own eye. He means Lord Roberts, who was known as Bob's. And he was delighted in the manner in which the Natal army fought. Buller was understandably delighted too. Buller was more than understandably delighted. He wrote to his wife, Lady Audrey, three days after the Battle of Birkendal, saying, Here I am, as happy as a pig. Today I have a telegram from the Queen. I defeated the army and opened the road to Machadadorp, while Lord Robert's army, which had got there before me, had missed the chance and had to sit looking on. What a beast I am! His flagrant boasting aside, he appeared to gloat more about beating his own field marshal than the actual defeat of the Boers. 
A British war correspondent arrived at the Kopis shortly after the victory and wrote this. Over all the majesty and the horror of death, the Boer dead lay where they'd fallen. The blood lay at the mouths of their wounds like frozen port. The faces yellowed and a powder of dust lay over them. They were massive in their repose, those dead Vulcans. Peace and broken peace to their souls, for they were brave men. The hated Zarps had fought to the death against overwhelming odds, and the British troops that saw them fight were impressed. But the Boer force fell back, many rushing towards Komatiport, some actually left for Europe, President Kruger eventually among them. Those remaining split up into smaller units and scattered to the north, making their way through the mountains, some for home, others to continue the fight. Many had decided to surrender, joining the nearly 15,000 who were already in prison camps. 10,000 other Boers had returned to their farms. Most of the European mercenaries had now left, leaving a small group led by Louis Boerter, but they were squeezed into a tiny corner of their own country, and they had lost control of the all-important railway line to Delagoa Bay in Portuguese East Africa. Stores and ammunition were dwindling. Eleven months of war had taken their toll. Denise Reitz describes how small groups of Boers made their way further east into the fever-ridden Lowfeld. He describes how, By day, great herds of zebra, wildebeest and sables stood fearlessly gazing at us, and at night lions prowled, roaring around our camps. Of hunting we had our fill, and to me this journey through a strange and remote region was full of fascination. But the British also rolled on. While Buller had established himself firmly on the line of the Boer position, Paul Carew had moved further to the north of the railway line, and French had advanced as far as Swartkopis upon the Boer right. These operations on the 26th and 27th were met with some resistance, and another 50 British troops killed or wounded, but it soon became evident that the punishment which they had received at Birkendal had taken the fight out of the Boers, and that this formidable position was to be abandoned as the others had been. On the 28th, the burghers were retreating, and Macharadorp, where Kruger had sat so long in his railway carriage, protesting that he would eventually move west and not east, was occupied by Buller. President Paul Kruger and his government already had made their escape, heading towards Delagoa Bay across the border. General Louis Boerter was escorted by the remnants of the Zarps and joined by a handful of officials. They climbed up a secret hunting path to make for a small lost village in the mountains called Urstadt in the Steelport Gorge. French, moving on a more northerly route than the rest of the British, finally entered Waterfall Onda with his cavalry on the 28th of August, driving a small Boer force before him. They had arrived at the Transvaal Republic's final capital, where the government had been running their war from a railway carriage. Amid rain and mist, the British columns were pushing rapidly forwards, but still the burghers held together, and still much of the artillery was uncaptured. The retirement was swift, but it was not a rout. On the 30th, the British cavalry were within touch of Nuitgedacht, and then saw a surprising sight, a long trail of ragged men who were hurrying in their direction along the railway line. They were 2,000 British prisoners, half of whom had been brought from Vardafal when Pretoria was captured, while the other half represented the men who had been sent from the south by De Vette, or from the west by Coeurs de la Rey. The Boers had taken over 7,000 prisoners. All were now being released, except for their top-ranking officers. 
Roberts, who had fixated on this eastward campaign, now realized that the shattered Boer army was moving away in small groups and sent parts of his army north and south, as well as fanning out from the railway, endeavoring to cut them off. Then, on the 1st of September, Roberts proclaimed the Transvaal Republic annexed to the Queen's dominions. It was a somewhat bombastic flourish as Boers under Louis Boerter continued to roam the mountain fastness in the east and General Kurs de la Rey was blowing up railway lines and causing mayhem. General Christian de Vett was also still on the loose in the Free State. Well, we have to rest up now and next week we'll hear how the British seize a booty of material from the Boers and how Louis Boerter is struck down by tonsillitis. Until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. A big thank you to listeners who've shared personal stories with me, particularly this week to Tobias, who emailed with some views on the use of the notorious dum-dum bullet, the position of the Eightlanders, and a suggestion about more comprehensive coverage of the Bloemfontein Conference, as well as the role of propaganda in this war. If you'd like to comment, please check out our website at abwarpodcast.com. You can also send me a direct message on Twitter at Days Latham. Goodbye. <laughs>